Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on another beautiful evening here in Tucson, Arizona, under a first quarter moon. And we welcome those of you listening to us on iTunes U via the World Wide Web and streaming at as.arizona.edu. This is the fifth lecture of the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series for spring of 2013. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, the 21-inch Raymond E. White telescope in the historic Stewart Observatory dome will be open. In fact, it's open right now, but it will also be open for you, for your observing pleasure. If you haven't seen Jupiter through a large telescope, I suggest you do so. And there's also a beautiful first quarter moon, as I mentioned tonight. For those of you who are here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment down here at this table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Finally, I'd like to pay attention, if you will, to our remaining schedule. We have another talk in two weeks on April the 1st. And then on April the 22nd, we have a very special event. We will be celebrating the 90th anniversary of the official dedication of the Stewart Observatory, and I have a lot of fun things in store for you planned. It won't just be Professor John Cock, but also I will be giving a presentation. I've opened up the goodie bag of Professor A.E. Douglas, and some things that haven't seen the light of day in probably 50 years uh, will be shown, as well as Professor Laird Close will be here to talk to you about a gentleman named Alvin Clark. And we have a very special surprise in that regard. But I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, because I want you to come. Oh, and we'll have birthday cake as well. So we are very, very pleased tonight to introduce to you one of our postdoctoral fellows, Dr. Charlotte Christensen. Charlotte received her bachelor's degree in physics from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. And then she received her PhD in astronomy from the University of Washington in Seattle. Here she is a postdoctoral fellow working, among other things, on galaxies. And so we've asked her tonight to give a talk on how to grow a galaxy, turning gas into stars across the history of the universe. Charlotte. Hi everyone, I'm delighted to be here and I'm really glad you could come out and I'm especially grateful for the people in the first couple of rows who are keeping me company up here. It's nice to see you all. Um, so yes, I will be talking about how to grow a galaxy. In other words, how galaxies form and how they evolve over the history of the universe. So let's start off with everybody's favorite galaxy. So I hope everybody's favorite galaxy, our Milky Way. And if you get out to a dark enough sky, you don't have to travel that far out from Tucson, you can see the Milky Way. It's this glow of stars that spreads out in an arc across the sky. And these stars here, and actually any star that you can see with your naked eye, and really with a telescope, these are all part of the Milky Way. There are several hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, and it is several hundred thousand light years across. Now we're seeing the Milky Way edge on. So if this is the Milky Way, we've got it pointed towards you that way. But if we were to travel at the speed of light for 100,000 years, we could get out of the Milky Way and we could look down on it. And we would see something that looks a little bit like this. So at the center, there is the bulge of the Milky Way. Here, this area of um, brightness with lots of stars. And spiral structure. And out here in the middle of this arm is the sun. So this is our home. And about a hundred years ago, it came to light that the Milky Way is not the entirety of the universe. That there are other galaxies out there much like the Milky Way. For example, we have our nearest uh, neighboring spiral galaxy, the Andromeda Galaxy. And this galaxy, you can, you can see in the night sky. You can see with your naked eyes very faintly or with a telescope. And with a very powerful telescope, you can see that it is also a spiral galaxy. We're seeing it here oriented 
sort of this way to you. So not quite edge on. And you can see, once again, that spiral structure. Now there's some dark areas in here. For instance, right here. And what that is, that is stuff that blocks out the starlight from getting from Andromeda to us. And that stuff is dust, tracing where the gas in the galaxy is. I want to emphasize that while we see the stars in the galaxy, underlying all of these stars is a whole bunch of other stuff, a whole bunch of gas and a whole bunch of dust. And that's what this image is here. This is an image which traces out the radiation from the dust. And it, it shows you where it is. And you'll see that it also follows a similar spiral structure laid out even more cleanly there. Now, while the Andromeda galaxy is the closest spiral galaxy, it's not the closest galaxy to us. Around the Milky Way are a number of satellite galaxies, small galaxies that orbit the Milky Way the same way the Earth orbits the Sun or the Moon orbits the Earth. And the most famous of these are the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud. These galaxies are about 1% the mass of the Milky Way and about 10% the size. So they're pretty small. And they also don't have much in the way of structure to them. So have sort of patchy star formation, patchy globs of gas. None of this elegant spiral structure, but very charming in their own way, I think. And beyond these galaxies, there are many other smaller galaxies that go around the Milky Way. Now, on the other end of the size scale, we have elliptical galaxies. These giant elliptical galaxies are huge. So they can be 100 to 1,000 times the mass of the Milky Way galaxy, uh, multiple times the size of the Milky Way galaxy. And these things are sort of egg-shaped, have the smooth distribution of stars, not a lot of underlying structure, and also, these galaxies don't seem to be forming very new stars. They are mostly dead, um, but still very pretty. And if you put all of these galaxies together on the same frame, you can sort of see the wide range of galaxies there are. So here we have the large Magellanic Cloud all the way up to a giant elliptical galaxy. And these span a great deal of morphology, of sizes, of mass, of types of star formation. And somehow, we need to figure out how these galaxies all relate together and how they fit together. And, as is the subject of this talk, where they come from. So let's start off with the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is what I'm going to show you here. And before I go too in-depth with this map, I want to remind you of another map, which I'm sure you're all much more familiar with. It's a map of the Earth, and what they've done is they've taken a spherical object and they've flattened it to make a flat object, which we can look at. This map is exactly the same thing, except the spherical object that we're flattening is the entire sky. Now a globe, you can kind of imagine stitching up the ends to form a sphere. Here you can imagine, once again, stitching up the ends, but they're forming a sphere around your head, and you're looking out at it. So this cosmic microwave background radiation, this is leftover light from about 4,000 years after the Big Bang, so very, very early on in the universe's history. And this is before any of these galaxies formed. And what you're seeing here is the temperature distribution of the universe soon after the Big Bang. So the blue areas, those are areas that are colder. And the red areas, those are areas that are hotter. And temperature, in this case, corresponds very well to density. So these red areas are actually also the very densest areas. And the blue, the most rarefied, the least dense. Now, the structure of galaxies is largely dominated by gravity. Gravity is the force that works best over long scales. And 
Gravitational force means that when you have a dense area, it is going to become more dense. So because there is mass here, more mass is going to fall into it, onto it. And then there will be more mass, and more mass will fall into that. And eventually we'll form galaxies out of that. And if we wait um, a few more 100,000 years, we can get to some of the earliest galaxies. This is a frame from the Hubble Deep Field, which is a survey that's taken one of the most sensitive images of the universe. And this field is 2.5 arc, arc seconds across. For reference, the full moon is 30 arc seconds across. So that's um, about a twelfth the size. And we, when we look into this, we're seeing some of the very oldest galaxies. Or rather, we're seeing galaxies when they were just formed. And as we zoom into it, you'll see that the galaxies look a bit different than they do these days. Oh, excuse my PowerPoint slide. I'm not sure why it's doing that. Um, but there we go. And for one thing, you'll notice that there are a lot, the galaxies are a lot more densely packed. So they were much closer together back in the early days. And you'll also notice that the morphologies tend to be a little bit more irregular. They don't have as clean of a structure. Um, another thing about these galaxies is they were forming stars much more rapidly than there are these days. So somehow, we have to tie together the cosmic microwave background radiation to the Hubble Deep Field to modern-day galaxies. We want to know how we get from these very earliest galaxies to these most modern galaxies. And that's a question. So there are several different ways you can go about it. One way is you can take these observations and some other observations in between, and you can try and stitch them together. You can connect the dots effectively. So say there are galaxies at this time look like this, they look like this at modern day, so they must somehow transform. And this is what a lot of people do, and they do it well. But they have to face some difficulties. For one thing, it's really hard to pair those galaxies together. There used to be a lot more galaxies than there are now, but they've merged and coalesced. And it's not always clear what comes from what. Um, to make it more difficult, we can't see all the galaxies there are very early in the universe because those galaxies are very faint. So we're missing galaxies. And we also don't know what processes change in one galaxy to, um, to a later galaxy. So there's another method people can do. It's called stellar archaeology. And what they, they do there is they try and find stars that were born at different times in the Milky Way and say, okay, we know some number of stars were formed after four billion years and some number after six billion years. And this sort of tells us how the stellar mass of Milky Way was, was built up. And this is a very useful method, but it again faces difficulties. For one thing, these very old stars that you're searching for, the, most of them have already died. And I'll talk later on about how stars die, but they do and a lot of them are gone by now. And the ones that are left are very faint. Furthermore, stars move around. These galaxies don't stay in the same shape. So just because we see an old star somewhere now doesn't mean that that's where it was born. So we have to make some inferences there. But that's another method. The method that I'm most interested in is simulating a galaxy where we decide to create our own data, which is the problem with it, but also the fun thing. <laughs> and basically we say, let's start off with how we think the universe began, these initial conditions, which we know very well from the cosmic microwave background radiation, and add in some physics, and use that physics to bring us up to modern day. And that'll tell us how the galaxy has changed. So this is a lot of fun. You get some cool movies out of it. You can play around with your galaxies. It has the problem that you are creating your own data, which is always worrisome, always dangerous. So you have to hope that your data is realistic. And better than that, you have to show that it's realistic. 
But the nice thing about it is it allows us to poke at galaxies, which is not something you can really do in most of astronomy. I had an astronomy professor in college who said that astronomers um, we're like tantalus in that we want what we can't touch. We spend our lives staring at these photons from things that we'll never be able to get anywhere close to. And I just don't abide by that. I want to be able to mess with it and add in some new physics and see what happens. And simulations <laughs> let me do that. So how do we go about simulating a galaxy anyway? How do I do this? So let's start with what makes up a galaxy. We have stars. So we also have, as I've spoken about before, gas, and along with that gas is the dust. And then we have all of this dark matter. So dark matter makes up 85%, 84% of the matter in the universe. And it is, as its name implies, very mysterious stuff. That the only way it seems to interact with things is through gravity. So it's dark because we can't see it. It doesn't emit light. It also does not um, reflect light or absorb light. So you know that I'm standing here in front of you because some light is bouncing off of me and I'm also blocking some light from the wall and from the screen. But even if you couldn't see, you could still come up and shake my hand and you'd know I was there. If I were made out of dark matter, you wouldn't be able to do that either. Because the thing that allows you to touch me is these electromagnetic bonds um, between the atoms which make up molecules and prevent my hand from going through your hand. Now dark matter is not going to bond together and create this structure. So this is weird stuff. Thankfully, it does have some very measurable effects, mainly that stuff it has mass, and things are attracted to that mass through gravity. So around this galaxy is all this dark matter. There are a lot of different ways you can simulate this. Well, a couple different ways you can simulate this. Um, the one that I like to do is to take up this stuff and divide it into some particles. So I can take this image of a galaxy and break it down and now I have the yellow are particles representing the stars, the red are particles representing the gas, and the blue-gray are particles representing the dark matter. There are some difficulties because we're taking something that is a pretty continuous distribution of matter and we're making it discrete. And that, that's tricky, but astronomers are, um, have been making a lot of progress on that. Things seem to be going pretty well. Um, so let's talk about these particles. Now when I say particles, I don't mean anything small. I mean things that are at the very smallest, a thousand, well, 10,000 times the mass of the sun. So this star particle that I'm talking about, that's not a star. That is an entire cluster of stars. That's Pleiades cluster there. So we can build these and then we can set them loose and see what happens. And that is kind of tricky, so we're going to simplify things first and I'm going to ignore everything except the dark matter. And the reason I'm ignoring everything except the dark matter and that I can do this and that all the biggest simulations and the oldest simulations are just dark matter is because one, it's most of the universe, so things will tend to follow it. And we want to do it because it's pretty simple. We just have to model gravity, and gravity is pretty well understood. So for each of these dark matter particles, I can calculate the gravitational force that it feels from its surrounding particles. And then I can move over to the next particle and calculate the gravitational force it feels. The very first simulation like this was done in 1941, and I like to talk about it just because it was so innovative and such a cool idea. Now, 1941 is pretty early to be doing computer simulations, right? Um, and this wasn't done using computers. So what um, this man, Eric Holmberg, did 
is he set up some light bulbs on sticks, which rep represented the particle, and he attached a, a photo detector to it, so something to measure the amount of light that it, that it is at that position. He put these sticks up, and the light flux falls off the same way that gravity does. So the amount of light that reaches something is effectively the same as the gravitational force that thing would feel. So he put out all of his sticks, and for each of them he'd mark down what force it was feeling, and then he would move them according to that force, and then he'd mark down what force they were feeling, and then he'd move them a little bit more, and he would iterate through this. You can see he didn't use very many, um, because there's only so much time somebody has. <laughs> but he has calculated this interaction between these two spiral galaxies. These days, we do not have to resort to um, light bulbs and sticks. We can actually use computers to do full simulations. So what I'm going to show you now is a simulation that's run with just dark matter that shows the history of the universe. And what you're seeing here is called the cosmic web. That's all that gray. That's all the dark matter. And this filamentary structure is built up as gravity causes, um, causes the dark matter to condense in on itself. And the yellow areas are the areas where you have a high concentration of dark matter. And over time, what, you'll, what will happen is these will merge and form larger objects. So what we're seeing are basically small galaxies merging and forming into large galaxies. There we go. All right, so that's pretty good, and people spend a lot of time working on this. But there are some problems and some reasons that I like to add gas and stars into my simulations. First of all, we don't see the dark matter. And if we want to compare our simulations to observe galaxies, we need to know how to bridge that gap between dark matter and the stuff we observe. Second of all, I actually care about what happens with the gas and the stars in my simulations. So the solution to both of these problems is to add in some gas and some stars. So we'll put back in the gas and star particles. And this is a little bit more complex, because these things do not just act, react to gravity. Gas will cool, and it will heat up, and it will contract, and it will expand. Stars have lifespans, so stars form, and then after some period of time, they will die off. So we need to model all of these processes when adding them. And a lot of these processes, for instance, the formation of stars, happens on scales that are far too small for us to resolve. So we get down to particle masses that are 10,000 times the mass of the sun, and somehow we have to model how the sun forms. We're not going to be able to do that unless we put in subgrid processes, is what they're called. But basically, unless we figure out how these things work on really large scales, and then just shove that model in. So the things that I want to address most importantly are the formation of stars and their death. So this particle here is going to form a star. And the way that astronomers in simulations decide whether a particle forms a star is we say we know that star formation happens in gas and that it happens at a certain rate based off of how much gas there is. So we'll say that 
for a given period of time, there's some probability that gas particle will spawn a star particle. And that, will star, that star will have formed. Now, the second thing we need to deal with is the fact that stars die off. And we know a lot about the life cycle of stars. We know that the more massive a star is, the shorter, it lives, the shorter its lifetime, the less massive, the longer its lifetime. We know that very massive stars, when they die off, die off in a supernova, which ejects a ton of energy into the surrounding gas, and also ejects um, elements like carbon and oxygen and iron. So we can put in these descriptions, and we can say that, let's say you are a star particle. Oops, let me go back. Let's say you are a star particle. Depending on when you were formed, after some period of time, some amount of stars inside of you, remember this is a stellar cluster, not just a single star, will die off and produce supernova and eject all this energy into the surrounding gas. And that energy we call stellar feedback. Because basically what's happening is the gas is forming a star out of it, so the stars from, come from the gas, and then the stars turn right back around and affect the gas by putting in all of this heat and all of this kinetic energy. And if we put these processes together, we can build a cartoon model of galaxy formation. So, to know how a galaxy forms, you only need to know three things, really. We need to know how the gas gets into this galaxy, how fast it's coming in, what it's like when it comes in, over what period of time it comes in, all of that. And then we need to know how that gas is transformed into stars. So at what rate it turns into stars, uh, where the star formation is happening, and all of that. And then we need to know how that energy from the stars affects the gas. And how much of, if you heat up the gas enough, you can actually toss it out of the disk of the galaxy again. So how does that happen? Now, the devil is in the details. Each of these is extremely uncertain. But this at least gives us some place to start. Now, to put in the full physics, we're going to want to run this on a computer, um, probably a supercomputer. So the highest resolution simulations can take nine months, maybe, running on several hundred processors on a supercomputer. So it's a big time commitment and a, um, a big commitment in general. This is the supercomputer that I run on. It's Pleiades, um, part of NASA Ames. And this is a list of the top 500. So these are the fastest supercomputers in the world as of November 2012. And right down at number 14 is Pleiades. Used to be higher up, but you know, things change. More computers are built. So you put in all of that, and you wait a few months. <laughs> and you hope for the best. Um, oops, that's dark matter. Let's go to gas. So this is a simulation with gas in it, gas and stars. And it's really zoomed in on a galaxy. The simulation from earlier showed a huge volume of space, and now we're going to focus on the formation of one spiral galaxy. So the gray material you're seeing now is not dark matter. It is gas. The blue, that represents stars that were recently formed. And the red, when you see it later on, will be stars that um, are older. So after this, stellar particle has lived a while. There you go, there's some pink. And you'll see that as in the previous simulation, there are a lot of mergers. This galaxy is going to be built up by putting in multiple galaxies and also by the accretion of gas just from um, the cosmic web. And over time, we'll have a really nice spiral galaxy, which is somewhat reminiscent to the Milky Way. There's a bar at the center of it right now. That bar will 
go in and out of existence over the lifetime of the galaxy. So here you'll see gas accretion happens such that now we have an offset in the spiral disk. So this ring around the outside is in a slightly different plane than the rest of the galaxy. Now we have a very strong bar. And in a few minutes it will settle down and it will become the way that it will be for the rest of its history. Um, so this simulation goes all the way up to modern day, so the universe is about 14 billion years and according to this red line we're probably at 10, um, 11 billion years. So they don't, not all simulations will, will f go to Z of zero, go to modern day. Um, but the nice thing about iterating the simulation all the way up is that means we can compare it to the galaxies we know best, which are the ones um, close by. All right. I think that's the last time I'll have to switch to YouTube. So from here on, it should be easy. So we have a simulation and it looks cool. We can make a nice movie out of it. But is it realistic? Does this mean anything? Well, from my very biased perspective, you know, simulated galaxies aren't bad. We do pretty well in a lot of ways. So in the past five years, 10 to five years, people have been able to make spiral galaxies so they can get the morphology right. This is a, a recent, very high resolution simulation. This is an actual galaxy. You see it has a nice spiral structure to it. Um, and people have recently been able to get the size of the galaxy right and the amount of stars it has in it. So they're doing well. There are, however, some issues that are not going so well. And I want to show you the data that shows why these things aren't working. And for that, I'm going to need to take us back to elementary school or preschool or the playground. So here we have a merry-go-round. And I have this up because I want to talk about gravity and centripetal force. So there are these children here. And in a few minutes, the gentleman is going to spin this. And the children will have to hang on very tight or they will fly off. Now, if he spins it very slowly, the kids don't actually need to hang on that hard. And if he spins it very fast and you walk by, you're going to really worry that some of the kids are not going to stay on it. So we have an intuitive idea that the faster something is rotating, the stronger you need to hold on. Now, when we talk about galaxies, obviously we don't have yellow bars. The force that we deal with is gravity. And the more massive something is, the stronger that gravitational force. So if we look at galaxies which rotate, I think this rotates, which rotates, we can say if it's rotating faster, that means that there needs to be a strong gravitational force that keeps those stars in the galaxy and not flying off. If it's rotating slower, gravitational force doesn't need to be that strong. And since gravitational force is directly related to how much mass there is inside of it, we can say by measuring how fast something is rotating in the galaxy, we know how much mass of stuff there is interior to that star. And this is called a rotation curve. So, re realistic or observed galaxies this is radius, so it's distance out from the center. And this axis is how fast something at that radius is going. Realistic galaxies look something like this. 
And simulated galaxies don't. And if you look at, in particular, close in, you'll notice that the observed galaxies aren't going all that fast. This stuff isn't going all that fast near the center. Simulated galaxies, that stuff is going much faster. Which means that in simulated galaxies, there is too much stuff at the center of these galaxies. Um, we say that these have too high of mass concentration. So this is weird, and it implies that we are missing some aspect of physics or that our understanding about how the universe started is wrong or something that people are worried a lot about, our understanding of dark matter is wrong. All right, I'm just going to leave that as a question for now. Another question we have to address is, how is that stellar mass built up over time? So in this plot, I'm showing time along the x-axis, and this goes from the Big Bang right up to modern day, which is almost 14 billion years. And this is the mass of stars in a galaxy. Now, galaxies over time, the mass of stars basically goes up. You can go down a little bit as stars die off, but on the whole, your stellar mass increases. Now, this gray area shows how observed galaxies behave. And we see that, in general, galaxies evolve such that their stellar mass increases about the same over time. There's a lot of spread in here. Some observed galaxies might look like that. Some might look like that. Some might look like that. But they all lie about in this region. Most simulated galaxies aren't doing that. So as you can see for this galaxy right here, by the time half the history of the universe has gone by, all of its stellar mass has been built up. Too much of the star formation is happening early on. And this is weird, because there are good reasons to think that star formation would happen early on. Remember that cartoon picture of galaxy formation I showed you earlier? And I said, we just need to know how much stuff is getting in there and how that gas turns into stars. Well, we know that earlier on, there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of gas that is being accreted onto the disk of the galaxy, or waiting to be accreted onto the disk of the galaxy, and not so much these days. So you would expect, you'd expect that gas to, that higher amount of gas to correspond to more star formation, which is what we see in our simulations, but not in the actual universe. So this is a big question, and it's an area that simulations just don't do well in. All right. So I look at this and say, well, we could change dark matter, could change something about the start of the universe. That might be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We put in all this physics, and we put in physical models, which are still very, still very rough. So perhaps it's actually something in how we put in our models of gas and stars, which is not correct. In particular, is there something about how we're modeling star formation that is just not right? And there's good reason to think that we weren't modeling it correctly. So if I go back to our, um, our example galaxy, you see the stars here. Now if I show you the gas, and this is just the gas in the disk of the galaxy. There's, there's more gas surrounding the galaxy that we're just going to ignore for now. Show you the gas in the disk of the galaxy. It has a much greater extent than the stars. So there's some difference between the gas that's there and the stars. Some, not all the gas is forming into stars. So let's talk a little bit more about the gas. Most of the gas in the universe is hydrogen. And about 25% of it is helium. And some very small fraction of it is everything else. So just as a reminder for those of you who haven't seen a periodic table in the past, um, I don't know, 20 years or maybe in the past six months, um, as you go up in, in proton mass, so your atom has some number of protons and neutrons, but we care about the protons here, 
This has one proton, this has two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on. So as you go down the periodic table, you're increasing in mass and you're also increasing in complexity. And the universe, it turns out, is to a large degree a very simple thing. It likes these very simple atoms. And the rest of the stuff, astronomers, there's so little of it, astronomers oftentimes just refer to it as metals and don't make much distinction between it. Other astronomers make lots of distinction between it, um, but you didn't come to hear one of them talk tonight. <laughs> so I like things so simple that I'm just going to focus on the hydrogen, and I'm going to subdivide the hydrogen into a couple of different types. Now, hydrogen has one proton and typically one electron. You can ionize the hydrogen, strip the electron from the proton, and that hydrogen is very hot, and it tends to exist surrounding the disk of the galaxy, and we could ignore it for now. Other types of hydrogen, we have atomic hydrogen. So this is kind of the normal state of hydrogen. We have a proton and an electron which circles around it. There is also a colder stage of hydrogen called molecular hydrogen. And there you have two hydrogen atoms which are bound together. And this molecular hydrogen tends to be very cold. And by cold, I mean really cold. So let's see, it's around negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. The coldest temperature on Earth is negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Or if you prefer Kelvin, that's 10 to 100 um, Kelvin instead of Earth, which is around 184 Kelvin. So it's really cold when I say cold. It's also dense. But when I say dense, I mean that in the most relative sense possible. So molecular hydrogen has about 100 atoms in a cubic centimeter, which might not seem too bad until you realize that the air in this room has around 10 to the 21 atoms in a cubic centimeter. So this dense is a very, very relative. The molecular clouds are actually much closer to a true vacuum than anything we can create in a laboratory here on Earth. But compared to all the other gas in the universe, which would be, oh, um, let's see, 10 to the negative 6 atoms per cubic centimeter or something like that, this is pretty dense stuff. So what I've shown here are maps of where the atomic gas in the galaxy is, and where the molecular gas in the galaxy is, and where the total gas in the galaxy is. And the nice thing about the molecular gas, um, is that it follows the stars very nicely. And this and other reasons have led astronomers to conclude that stars form out of the molecular hydrogen. So when simulations have said, let's just let stars form out of, um, out of gas, you know, cool gas, maybe atomic gas, they're really letting stars form out of much more gas than actually happens in the universe. So maybe that's why our star formation's been wrong. And to make this even more intriguing as a possibility, um, there's reason to think that there used to not be a lot of molecular hydrogen. So here is an image of a molecular cloud from our galaxy. And this dark area, that's dark because of the dust, but it basically traces out where the molecular hydrogen is. And if you look inside of it, you'll see these little red circles. Those are stars that have just formed. They're very young stars still embedded in the gas. And if you look at, they're pink here, these stars, those are slightly less young stars. And they are near the molecular gas, but not inside of it. The reason they're not inside of it is that these young stars are emitting a ton of radiation, a ton of light. And those photons will dissociate the, mole the molecule. So it will break apart those two hydrogen atoms. And for that reason, there is no molecular hydrogen around these young stars. Molecular hydrogen does have a defense from this radi radiation, and that's the dust, this dark area here. So it's dark because it doesn't let light through it. 
which might be hard for us if we want to see inside of it, but which is great for the molecular hydrogen because that dust stops all this powerful light coming out of these stars and allows those atoms or those molecules to exist inside of it. So molecular hydrogen loves dust. And these dust, I have a, a picture of a dust grain. These are much smaller than dust you, you think of on Earth. This is made out of not only some hydrogen and helium, but all those higher order elements. So the carbon and the nitrogen and the lithium. And that stuff came along later. Hydrogen and helium were formed in the Big Bang, or soon after the Big Bang. All the other elements, those were formed by supernova, um, or uh, massive stars that kind of let off parts of themselves into the surrounding gas. So this dust had to build up over time, and it built up over time later. So this is an intriguing possibility. Was there less molecular hydrogen in the early universe, and therefore less star formation, which could delay stars? All right, that's a hypothesis, which means it is time to test it. So I implemented molecular hydrogen into um, the galaxy formation code I use. And I simulated some galaxies. So this is what the galaxies looked like before things started. Um, it looks funny because I'm only, I'm resolving areas of this to different degree. So out here, these are really, this gray stuff, these are really massive particles and not too many of them. Inside there are more particles, slightly less massive. In here, even more particles, even less massive. And there at the center, I've not only put dark matter, I've also added in some gas. And the reason I do this is because it's really time-consuming and expensive to simulate many particles or to simulate gas. And I only care about it right around the galaxy. But I like to have this overall environment because these gravity from up here will still affect how things work in there. So I can evolve this over 14 billion years. And if we zoom in on the center of that gas, there's a galaxy. And this is much better said in movie format. So once again, you'll see a number of mergers. Things start off pretty small. The gray is, is gas. The blue is recent star formation. The pink are older stars. Uh, the dark matter is there, but I've hidden it, okay. <laughs> um, just to, so that you won't be distracted. Any other questions while this is rolling? Mm. So we put this in a, so dark energy is the stuff which somehow is causing the universe to not only expand, but actually expand even faster. Um, and what we do to model that is we include this expansion. So we include it into our cosmology, but we don't use any particles or anything to represent it. Yes, it's, it's figured into it. So what we do is, so that cosmic microwave background radiation gives us some idea of what the scale of the density fluctuations are like. And that's a random distribution, but, or that's a distribution that we can pull things randomly out of. And we do. So this is a valid galaxy that could occur in the universe, but the galaxies will look different depending on um, the randomness of that, and which is a good reason to do a lot of these simulations and then compare. Yeah? No, I haven't mentioned any black holes. Um, not yet. Uh, I'm working, one of my colleagues, um, Jillian Bellaveri, has been putting in supermassive black holes into these same sets of simulations, and we've been working on merging our codes together. 
The galaxies that I work with are on the smaller side, so black holes aren't as fundamental to their evolution, but we'd like to do galaxies with both. Okay, this is over, so I'll take more questions at the end. All right, so we have a galaxy, and it looks pretty, and I can make it even look even prettier. Um, let's see. By making a mock observation of it, so figuring out what it would look like as seen through a telescope. You'll see it has spiral arms and a bulge, and it looks great. It's got these little blue areas, which are uh, clusters of recent star formation. So did it answer our question, though? Well, this was our question. Remember that simulations, the stellar mass was built up too early. Um, so the blue is a, a comparison galaxy, which was simulated without molecular hydrogen. And the red was simulated with molecular hydrogen. And there's not really any significant difference. Now, it's possible that requiring molecular hydrogen does delay star formation a little bit, though that is something we need to try out with other initial conditions. But it really doesn't have much effect. So why is this? Well, there's the gas, without forming stars, has no reason to not just keep on getting denser. And eventually it will get so dense that it will be able to block out the radiation itself and will form stars. And that time delay, that amount of time is only how long it takes gas from getting from being 100 atoms per cubic centimeter dense to maybe 10,000 atoms per cubic centimeter dense. And it's not, just not that long in the grand scheme of the universe. All right, so we tested a we tested something and it failed. Well, it didn't fail. This is science, and, and proving something wrong is just as valid as, as showing something which, is, um, which works with your hypothesis, right? And in some ways, it's even stronger, because now I can actually throw this idea out rather than just say, we have some support for it. So it's not all bad, right? And it's not, and that's, that's really true. But um, the... There are always other interesting things you can pull out of it as well, and it just so happens that this simulation had a really interesting other effect. So if we go back to those rotation curves, which told us how much mass there was interior to a certain point, and I said that modern galaxy, or that simulated galaxies are just way too concentrated. Here I'm once again comparing the galaxy without molecular hydrogen to the one with molecular hydrogen. And you see this red line is with molecular hydrogen. Suddenly it's not concentrated anymore, which is great. We have a much more realistic galaxy in a way that we didn't expect. Because here I was changing how the gas was, and I was changing how it formed stars, but I wasn't directly putting anything in that had to do with where the matter was. And gas is a very small fraction of mass in a galaxy. Um, well, the gas in stars are a small fraction, around 20%. So it might be surprising that it could change the central mass so very much. This is really interesting. And what's happening has to do with those supernova I was talking about earlier, that stuff called stellar feedback, in which the stars then affected the gas. By changing the gas, I was actually changing how well that energy from stars coupled with the gas. I suddenly made it so that energy from the stars affected the gas more strongly. It was able to transfer more of its energy to the gas, which caused some of that gas to outflow out from the galaxy. So this is an image of the Milky Way, and this gray stuff is gas which is flowing out from the center of the galaxy. And our simulations do something similar, where these pink particles are now my representation of gas, and particles leave the disk of the galaxy because of supernova. Not only do particles leave the disk of the galaxy, this sudden 
explosive force which ejects the part, um, or the sudden explosive change in the amount of gas at the center of the galaxies, that actually also changes the dark matter. Because the dark matter responds gravitationally to the gas. Just like gas responds gravitationally to the dark matter, it goes both ways. And we don't tend to think of it going both ways because there's so much dark matter. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of seen as the boss. But here it is, the little guy, the baryons, the gas and stars, when you get to the very center, things can actually have an effect. So, where does this leave us? Well, we disproved something and we found something new. Um, we showed that limiting star formation to molecular hydrogen will not delay star formation in galaxies that much, so we need to come up with another idea there. We've also shown that in simulations, how, you, how feedback is modeled, how energy is transferred between stars and gas can have dramatic effects on the shape of the galaxy and where matter is. Now, this doesn't mean that this is what's happening in the actual universe. It is a good sign that it could be happening in the actual universe, but there are still questions. Um, for one thing, our model of feedback is done over large, massive scales. And feedback happens on the scale of a single star going supernova. So somehow we need to make sure that we're bridging those scales correctly. Um, so that's something that I'm working on and that many other astronomers are working on. And let's see, what else do we want to do? And we still need to figure out why star formation is delayed anyway. So there's plenty of work for the future, which is great, because when astronomy is solved, I'll be very happy, and then I'll have to figure out what else to do with my life. <laughs> All right, I think this is a good time to take questions. Thank you very much, Charlotte. We have time for questions. Uh, I ask that you speak into the microphone so we can get the question for the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask about elliptical galaxies. I know that they're uh, populated by older yellow stars with a little gas. Does this mean that all spirals, such as in your uh, simulation there, will just turn into ellipticals in the long run? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I'm serious about that being a really good question. People are... People have a lot of theories about how elliptical galaxies form, but it's still very open. One idea about, so the most common idea of how ellipticals form is they form from the buildup of many other smaller galaxies, generally spiral galaxies or smaller ellipticals. And the thing is, since the universe is expanding, galaxies are merging less frequently. So the Milky Way will merge with Andromeda another four billion years, I think. Um, let me start the countdown now. <laughs> and that could result in possibly an elliptical galaxy. Uh, there's a lot of thought that it could. But not all galaxies are going to undergo that type of merger. So then the question is, if you have a spiral galaxy in which all the gas is run out of, that's a completely different beast from any spiral galaxy we have these days. Um, so maybe it would just be a very spiral distribution of, of older stars. Other questions? Over here, yes. Um, galaxies are organized in um, clusters of galaxies and in turn in superclusters. And, and um, with your modeling tools, would, uh, would the process, um, processes that involve the formation of spiral galaxies in contrast to the formation of elliptical ga galaxies be dependent upon the environment or location within these, um, um, uh, super, uh, these clusters of galaxies or these superclusters of galaxies? And if so, how, how would that uh, um, process occur? And actually, I did want to have one additional question, which is about low surface brightness galaxies and if those um, 
uh, models uh, hold up to that as well. All right, so the question is about how your environment affects your galaxy and how it forms. And this is something that there's a, yes, environment does affect galaxies. It's, people are still working quantitatively to figure out exactly how, but ellipticals form where there's a lot of gas, a lot of stuff, and where there are a lot of mergers. So they tend to form at the centers of clusters or to fall into the centers of clusters and form there. And spiral galaxies will often form in the outskirts or they'll form in areas that are lower density in general. Um, low surface brightness galaxies are, tend to be uh, between dwarf and spiral galaxies, somewhere in that continuum. And they don't have many stars in them. They have very, um, they don't have much in the way of, bulge, of a bulge. And those, in contrast to the ellipticals, tend to form in environments that are very low density. So there's not a lot of stuff coming in. Other questions? Yes, over here we have a couple. My question has to do with uh, your model. And I assume that, that you started out with indiscrete volumes of some kind and then had a certain number of atoms within each one and then uh, you somehow or other decide when they become a star. Yeah. The so reason I'm asking this is I'm trying to figure out how the, you had stellar mass versus time. And it's growing, so I assume that that means that you're somehow modeling the, the, the hydrogen molecules and helium coming together to form a star. But then what I'm really having trouble with is the earlier graph that showed the mass going down. How could you possibly, unless you were blowing up a lot of stars? I, I, so in that earlier plot, you've got a, there are a couple of things happening. One, you do lose um, massive stars, so that's part of the reason it's going down. The other reason is that interactions can strip stars off of it and how, how what's defined in the galaxy can change over time too. So it's, it's basically either loss of stars through interactions or loss of stars through stellar death. Um, your question about how we model star formation is we say for gas that is molecular in my case, um, it will have some probability of spawning a star particle in some amount of time. That probability is based on what we observe. We see this amount of molecular gas tends to get transferred to change to stars over this time period. And so when a star particle is formed, that gas will, the mass of the gas will be shifted to the mass of the star particle, and then we'll have a less massive gas particle and, and a new star particle. Thank you. Do your models have the resolution to tell us anything about the formation of globular clusters in the halos? So, not quite, but very, it's getting very close. Um, so globular clusters are these stellar populations which um, primarily exist in the halo of the galaxy. And they're interesting because they seem to get at these very early stages of star formation and maybe how things merged into our galaxy. But our model for clustered star formation is just not quite refined enough at this point. So I'd say sometime in the next few years. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not yet, but, but give, us a, give us a while. Let the computer speed up. If you'll indulge me for two more announcements. First of all, we've put together an email list and we've been sending out uh, email notices of upcoming lectures. Uh, if you are not yet on that list, but you would like to receive email notices from Stewart Observatory about the public evening series and other events, there is a sign-up sheet in the back. If you'll give us your email address, uh, you will begin to receive these uh, email notices. Also, if you'll remember, Professor Chris Impey gave a wonderful talk last September. Well, he asked me to remind you 
that he is starting next week a MOOC. MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Course. Uh, he's, going to, he's expecting to have thousands of students all across the world taking his astronomy course, and it's free. If you would like to do it, there are flyers in the back of the room next to where that sign-up sheet is, and it gives you all the information you need to know to participate in Professor Impey's MOOC on astronomy, the state of the art. I will also remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight, April the 1st, when Professor Yancey Shirley will tell us a little bit smaller scale than what Charlotte was talking about, how solar systems will form around other stars. So hope to see you in two weeks. The telescope is open. Please go visit it if you haven't seen it yet. I'll stamp student assignments down here. And let's thank Dr. Christensen one more time. <laughs>